This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and today I'm joined by Clara Cook. Hi, Clara. How are you? Uh, hi, Duncan. I'm good. I'm I'm well. Yeah, I feel like I should make some sort of witty uh, intro to this podcast, but it's, it's, this is not a witty or happy thing to talk about. So, yeah, I mean, this 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 might not be one of our funny ones. We're always saying, Clara, whenever you come on the show, we always end up talking about something really dark and serious, and then saying, "Well, next time we're going to come on and, and talk about something really uh, <laughs> jolly and lighthearted and 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 fun and frivolous." So, tell me, Clara, what's the topic uh, that you suggested we talk about? this week for our listeners um so i'm laughing because uh it's ironic about how many sad things we talk about i'm not laughing about this topic specifically uh today we are going to be talking about suicide and suicide in star trek i was kind of surprised when i looked into this there's quite a lot of suicide in star trek i mean when when we first started talking about this topic kind of off the top of my head i could think of a few examples or a few storylines but actually, kind of when I went into it, when I started doing the memory alpha trawl and kind of going through, uh, there are quite a lot of at least sort of suicide related moments, I suppose, throughout the history of Star Trek. Um, but they play out in very different ways, some more kind of central to the story uh, than others, I guess. But I think, you know, it, it is an important topic. I mean, it is a very serious topic, obviously. Um, but it is certainly something that Star Trek hasn't shied away from. Um, to the extent that with Next Generation, they even did, I suppose, what you could say is Star Trek's kind of suicide episode, in a sense, uh, with the episode Eye of the Beholder, um, where, you know, you had this strange storyline. Obviously, ultimately, it kind of resolved itself into kind of sci-fi shenanigans and so on. But, you know, the episode started with this kind of mystery of this guy uh, killing himself by throwing himself into the... Um, I don't know, not the warp core, whatever it is, there's some element of the kind of engineering system of the ship. And then this kind of mystery of why did he do it? And immediately it goes into, um, Clara, you recommended to me a very interesting book, uh, by a guy called Jesse Bering, um, about the kind of science and, uh, brain science and cultural history of suicide. A very human ending, how suicide haunts our species. 
That's the one. And one of the things that he mentions in that book is this idea of the psychological autopsy that takes place after a suicide. And you get that very much in that Next Gen episode, that um, there's this desire to understand. You know, the man's partner is saying she doesn't know why it's happened. Uh, Picard says that he's never had an officer commit suicide under his command, which when you think about how common suicide actually is in the armed forces these days, uh, I suppose, says something about Star Trek in a way, or says something about the kind of next-gen worldview. But there's this kind of real sense among the Enterprise crew, this is a mystery that has to be uh, solved. They have to get to the bottom of this. They have to understand why it happened, because as is often the case, I suppose, in real life, it, it feels like it comes, it, you know, maybe not 100% out of the blue uh, in terms of our real life experiences, but it's it's usually a shock when it happens, I think. And it, it's usually something that people weren't quite uh, prepared for. And dealing with that shock is a big part of the kind of process of dealing with the aftermath of a suicide for people who, uh, you, you know, who are affected by it. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, even if somebody was expecting somebody maybe not expecting, but even if somebody had inclina- uh, an idea that somebody or an inkling that somebody had um, suicidal ideation, which is basically thinking about suicide, thoughts about suicide, um, or, you know, they had behaved uh, in the past in a suicidal manner, I still think it comes as a shock to individuals left behind when somebody does take their own life. Partly because as a species, we're kind of programmed, well, like most species on the planet, we're programmed to try and stay alive as much as possible and for as long as possible. So it seems to kind of go against, like I think in people's minds, it goes against the natural law of things. But then, you know, as Jesse Baring says in his book, he thinks that suicide is something that is very particular to human beings, uh, partly because we're so influenced by the people around us and because we have the imaginative capacity to think about how other people feel uh, and to try and understand other people's emotions. And that would that leads on to, you know, what you were saying was this uh, sort of emotional autopsy that takes place after somebody dies, uh, trying to imagine, you know, what they were thinking and feeling and why they did what they did. And to a certain extent, sometimes that can, I mean, if the person leaves a note or leaves some sort of indication as to why they did it, um, then that can actually sort of be discovered to a certain extent. But in some cases, family members, friends, the authorities are going to tie themselves in knots trying to figure out why somebody did what they did. Uh, In some cases, there never is an answer. I think that in Star Trek, because obviously we're seeing characters um, in a TV show and a a storyline, we will always find out, well, in most cases, we'll find out why somebody has committed suicide in Star Trek or in a TV show because they're going to explain that to you in the plot. Uh, but in some cases, in real life, people never know. And I think that that can be uh, of a great distress to the people left behind. It's not just the loss of the person, but it's the like lack of knowing why that person has done what they've done. Um, you know, I like we'll go on to talk about it. But um, to prepare for this podcast, I watched a TV show that you recommended called 13 Reasons Why, which was all about um, the suicide of a young teenager and a lot of that series is about um, the characters trying to figure out why that individual took her own life. And you see the sort of torture they go through trying to think about that and, and trying to figure it out. But yeah, in Star Trek, we kind of know why people do it, don't we? I mean, there's the case um, of uh, the, the Voyager episode with uh, Neelix, Mortal Coil. And 
I thought that was a brilliant example of um, suicide or attempted suicide, shall we say, because Neelix doesn't actually succeed in killing himself, but attempted suicide in Star Trek. It it really charts his like, emotional turmoil before um, and the steps that he goes through in, in mentally in order to reach this decision that he basically needs to die. Um, but we know why he's doing it because the storyline explains it. Whereas I wonder in real life, you know, we don't always know. And there's an interesting element in that storyline, I think, that Neelix actually seems quite calm and quite... Uh, I mean, one of the things that Jesse Baring talks about is the extent to which people who commit suicide are often in a state of, uh, A, a kind of black and white thinking, so that they tend to see things in the worst possible way and, and are not really considering alternatives, but also that there's actually a lack of empathy that goes on, that the kind of empathy in their brain slightly disconnects to the extent that they can't really think of the impact on the people they're going to leave behind. Um, now with Neelix, you see something slightly different. He seems very concerned for everyone else. You know, he goes and he he's had a bit of a falling out with Seven. He goes and apologises to her. He tells her what a wonderful person she is. He writes these very generous not just a kind of suicide note saying this is why I'm I'm doing this, but these kind of very generous, kind letters to everyone that he's known. There's kind of a sense with him, I, I suppose, although he, at one point in that episode, he kind of blames them for, because what's happened is he's, he's been sort of brought back from the dead effectively, he's lost his religious faith and so on. Um, so there's a degree of anger at a certain point in that episode, but generally speaking, he's not in a very angry place. He's more in a feeling of, uh, he just feels he has nothing to live for in a sense um and i just think it's quite interesting the way they play it that he's quite calm he's quite sort of organized he's quite methodical as indeed many people are you know uh we see him tidying up the mess hall uh you know sort of for the last time kind of not wanting to leave a mess even you know kind of make in this quite business-like way sort of making everything um so that it can be left in a kind of in a good way um and it is interesting, actually, thinking about that uh, Jesse Baring book. Um, for Neelix, of course, it comes about as a result of a lack of uh, or a, a kind of crisis in his religious faith. So he has this experience where he's died and is brought back and he thinks he should have been to the Talaxian afterlife. And he basically realises it's, you know, a load of old rubbish, essentially, and, and it's, it's not true. Um Chakotay arguing that, you know, notwithstanding that, that, you know, maybe it still really is true. And it's just that, you know, for some reason he didn't go there. Um, but it's kind of interesting. One of the things that Bering talks about is that for a lot of people, religion is a kind of protective factor, uh, against suicide, but that there are certain situations, um, where someone can suffer what he calls religious strain. And that actually puts them at increased risk. Now, I suppose Neelix is in that situation of, of suffering increased strain. Um, but I think it is characteristic. Uh, of people who go on to kill themselves that often often once the decision's been taken they do seem quite calm and it's one reason that people can kind of miss it i mean um i have a friend who uh not not a close friend of mine but um someone who was the partner of one of my partner nula's best friends so someone i sort of knew quite well i'd, I'd see him quite a lot um who took his own life just over a year ago and he had been very distressed he was having a really difficult time he was quite ill for a period of time. And then he seemed to be getting better. And I actually, you know, talked at his funeral to his um, psychologist who was there. And she, I think she was sort of saying, you know, he, he seemed to be getting better. Things seemed to be kind of improving. Um, and I think that's the thing. So in, in a way, as much as people had been quite worried about him before, he seemed slightly less of a worry at that point. Um, 
And, you know, when we're talking about that uncertainty, I mean, th- there's the sort of uncertainty about why did he go on to is sort of you know what was he thinking why did he make that decision and so on and there were all kinds of factors that came into play to do with um medication to do with his work and the way he was being treated at work to do with uh you, you know whether the nhs treatment he received was kind of adequate in various ways and so on but ultimately there's also that kind of i don't know that's that there's that there is that sort of mystery what was he thinking in that moment if you know what i mean of of going to do that that is that no one can really answer you can read a note or you can uh investigate all these possible causes and so on you can come up with as a coroner does i suppose a kind of narrative or a kind of sense of what might have led to someone to take their own life but you can't really access what was going on for them mentally at that point as much as you try to do this whatever it is psychological autopsy or whatever I suppose it does always leave a lot of questions. And I think it is a very um, disturbing thing for those around the person who's died. I mean, Bering talks a lot about the kind of taboos around suicide, that even people who sort of believe that they that they don't have them actually, uh, there are all these kind of unconscious prejudices in a sense, or kind of, or anxieties at least. Um, but I think it's also just very shocking. I mean, I remember when, uh, this friend of ours died. Uh, Nula was on the phone. She rushed over to see her friend. And she actually was quite, I mean, maybe because she had to sort of be strong to look after her friend and so on. She was quite sort of on top of things and, and kind of coping. Uh, and just left me with our son, Leo. And, and I, I was just like trying to distract him and keep him. I mean, he didn't know anything at this point, but you, you know, sort of keep things jolly. But I felt quite, um, kind of scared in a weird way. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it was a very, uh, shocking and kind of frightening experience just to just to you know get that news if you know what I mean and I do think that that I mean maybe that would be true if if someone you knew died suddenly in an accident or whatever but I do think it may be it's more of a shock somehow uh for the people dealing with it um and I think absolutely that episode I the beholder kind of um to some degree sort of plays into that and there's also you know there are also all these anxieties around suicide uh i mean talking about 13 reasons why um you know ideas about suicide contagion uh kind of ideas about what might happen next how to kind of process these experiences how to kind of um manage them how to move on from them and so on um it is a very disruptive phenomenon uh however it plays out yeah, I know what you mean. I think that in particular, it's because it's it, there's an intention perhaps there that makes that's what makes it sort of frightening. But also, it's not the same as an accident or dying from an illness, which seems very much like a stroke of fate. You know, maybe something that is not always preventable. I mean, it's true. Probably many accidents are preventable, and you can feel quite angry about somebody dying in an accident that appears to be preventable. But it's it's. It's, it's, there's something about like the human intention. I think in a way it's almost similar to somebody, um, somebody's life ending, um, through the actions of another human being. So, uh, the few times I've known that people that have, um, like have lost their lives through, um, they've been uh, killed by somebody else that's also a very frightening thing. I mean, it's not the same as suicide, but it's, it's, it's something that seems entirely unnatural, you know? Whereas if you randomly have a car accident, it's obviously devastating, but there's an element of fate there. Whereas I think with suicide or with um, death at another person's hands, it feels very much like 
it doesn't feel like fate. Do you know what I mean? It feels very much like a design. And I think there's something kind of frightening about that. I think one of the things that you said is interesting about the calmness. And one of the things I thought was uh, um, interesting about this is that the the idea that somebody's getting better and and if someone's getting better, you know, the, the danger isn't there. Uh, and that's one of the myths that exists about suicide. So just to talk a little bit about the facts and the myths around suicide, which I think are interesting, uh, partly because um, Star Trek is quite good in um, not really perpetrating any of these myths, actually. I'm quite pleased with Star Trek. I was like, well done, guys. Um, although I, I have This a li- has got to be a first for you, Clara. Every time <laughs> you do one of these weighty topics, you come in and, and, and say how badly Star Trek has handled it. So this is a this is definitely a good one, if you think they got but, it right I mean, for once. The one thing I would say is, though, that I was very disappointed in Chakotay and how he treated Neelix. I think Chakotay meant well. Bless Chakotay and his heart. You know, I think Chakotay means well, but you don't take somebody onto the holodeck and make them relive their death do you know what i mean and that was pretty thoughtless thoughtless. (laughs) and also when neelix is standing on the transporter pad and about to like basically transport himself into the cold darkness of space chakotay says you know what about these people that need you what about people that love you and that is apparently one of the big no-nos um that you shouldn't do that oh really yeah because you're guilt tripping people i mean the things if you ever do come across somebody who is um basically about to commit suicide (laughs) or is thinking about it um you know you don't argue a debate with the person about their thoughts of suicide um you don't discuss the with the person whether suicide is is right right or wrong so you don't don't be going and saying oh it's a sin or whatever you want to say um you don't use guilt or threats to prevent suicide don't tell the person that they're going to hell or they'll ruin other people's lives if they do i think chakose wasn't trying to threaten neelix he was trying to be kind but guilt tripping Neelix in that moment, you know, like what about, you know, little Naomi who needs to be tucked into bed? And yet that is ultimately what stops him. So that's very interesting. I mean, I don't know, you know, maybe, and I totally bought that as a viewer. Maybe that's not realistic. I don't know. But, but I mean, I would say, I think one of the things that Jesse Baring talks about is these protective elements. And I think children are a protective element, whether your own or someone else's. But, but that's interesting that maybe, maybe Samantha Wildman happening to wander in was more effective than Chakotay kind of making this argument in a sense. Do you know what I mean? I mean, maybe that's true that that the kind of guilt tripping element actually makes things worse. I don't know. It's not so much that I think it was the guilt tripping. It was the like, you have a task to do, Neelix. There's something you need to do. A responsibility sort of thing. Yeah, almost a little bit like, have you finished cooking the whatever root, uh, the have a root, whatever it is, you know, like there's, it's like a slight, you know, you need to do this one task before you do this. You know, why don't we, why don't we just go over here and just check out this one thing before you do this? It's delaying the person. We're trying to take them out of that moment so that they have time in which to think twice or to reflect. So um, there's a really good book and I can't remember the details of it now. It's called The Man on the Bridge, I think it is. And it's a written by, from the point of view of somebody who was going to kill himself. This poor guy has serious mental health issues for most of his life. Um, and it's written from the, the, it's written basically from his point of view, but also from the man who saved him. Um, and they've, they, these two men tore together, um, talking about suicide and suicide prevention. And what the guy did was he basically came across this young man on the bridge. Um, and he talked to him to the point where he, like, it's not so much questioning, like, why are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? But like, more like, why don't you tell me what you're feeling? Why don't you tell me what's going through your mind right now? Do you perhaps maybe want to sit with me and talk with me for 10 minutes or five minutes? And then the longer that you have somebody talking, the more they're going to calm down. Or if they're calm, the more they're going to start um, 
slowly coming around to the realization of what they're doing. It's giving them time. It's basically buying them time so that they can change their minds in that moment. And then, of course, he called like the ambulance um, and they took this man off to hospital to make sure he was properly assessed and taken care of. Uh, but it's it's that he managed to keep him talking for long enough that he decided he decided like actually maybe today I don't really want to jump off this bridge and so that's one of the things but I guess in a way Chakotay is kind of doing that isn't he he's continuing he's keeping Neelix talking so that he doesn't vaporize himself or beam himself out to space and he is kind of I feel like Chakotay is one of those it's it's a bit of a trope in Voyager anyone who's in kind of emotional turmoil it's Chakotay they don't have a counsellor it seems to be Chakotay who kind of wanders in and like sometimes kneeling down he makes these kind of impassioned speeches that uh you know get people to stop in their tracks and and you know kind of reevaluate things and so on but but I mean it is interesting that that is it's good I suppose to know what to do in a situation like that I mean funnily enough uh another friend of mine only about a week or so ago found herself out for a run um, and came across a woman standing on the edge of a bridge about to jump and did, in fact, manage to, um, you know, get her to not jump. Uh, and I think called, called his, this girl was only like 17 or something, managed to call her father and get them off to hospital and so on. Um, and she used uh, mindfulness, I think, on this girl. She, she, I mean, I assume she talked to her for a bit first, but then persuaded her to do some mindfulness with her, which I guess is kind of the same thing. It's sort of uh trying to slow things down trying to kind of calm that person in some ways or or at least introduce different thoughts and so on um and maybe just the interaction with the other person in a non-threatening and non-kind of invasive sort of way uh is incredibly helpful in that moment i mean it's interesting i suppose to compare chakote in mortal coil uh, with the role that Bashir plays in Hard Time, which is a, in some ways a similar episode insofar as you have O'Brien in that episode going through this awful experience where he has these implanted memories of this prison sentence and an enormous amount of guilt and shame about having, uh, as he believes, murdered his cellmate. Um, and shame is a very key emotion in uh, people who go on to commit suicide. It's, it's very often the kind of uh, defining uh, issue that is is kind of consuming them one way or another. And what Bashir does really is he doesn't try to guilt trip O'Brien. He doesn't say, you know, what about Keiko? What about Molly? They, you know, so much. He he questions O'Brien saying that he's a bad person. O'Brien is, is doing the black and white thinking. He's kind of seeing th- everything very much um, uh, as either good or bad. You know, he said he got angry with his daughter. He was afraid he might hit his daughter. Um he thinks he's a bad person. He deserves to die. And this is another thing that apparently, um, according to that Bering book, uh, some psychologists, though not all, believe that um, for some people who commit suicide, they see it as a kind of self-imposed death penalty, essentially, that it's a punishment for uh, some kind of crime or some kind of um, awfulness within themselves. And so that's really what O'Brien is saying. And Bashir is just saying, he sort of tries to slightly neutralise the black and white thinking. He he says, you're a good man. You know, yes, you did a bad thing. Uh, kind of everyone, no one's perfect. Do you know what I mean? He's sort of trying to get him to get out of that frame of mind and get out of that way of thinking. And again, very calm, very sort of measured, um, less sort of impassioned in some ways than Chakotay, but just very, he seems like a very good person to talk you down from that ledge in a way. Yeah, I think the one downside of that episode is right afterwards, they're just walking along the corridor and it's like, O'Brien's like, oh, I think I'll be fine now. And I'm like, what? 
Hell no. Like, that's not how it works. Like, people who um, at least attempt suicide once or have suicide ideation more likely think about suicide again, and they may even attempt it again. Yeah, so some of the myths around suicide, which I thought was interesting maybe just to talk about, is there's like this myth that once a person is seriously considering suicide, there's nothing you can do about it. And like you said, most suicidal crises are time-limited and based on unclear thinking, and so most people attempt attempting suicide want to escape the situation that they're in um, and getting them to the time limited. So as long as you can take up some of that time with them, talking to them, um, you're actually delaying them actioning their suicide plan or whatever they're planning on doing. I mean, some people will do it in the heat of the moment, um, essentially very, very distressed, like in um, Eye of the Beholder, uh, in the TNG episode. Um, and in some cases, it will be very measured. There was one TV series that I thought I should mention, which is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is actually a comedy, a musical comedy, but it addresses all sorts of is- important issues about mental health. And the main character at one point, spoiler alert, um, commit, tries to commit suicide. Um, and she does this thing where she has a bo- bottle of pills. In fact, she does it on a plane. She's so unhappy that she does it on a plane. Um, in front of everybody and no one really knows notices what she's doing and you could say it was more of a, a cry for help than a real serious suicide attempt because she does then tell the the air she calls the air hostess over and sort of says i think i've just tried i think i'm trying to kill myself um and then they take her off to hospital but she has a bottle of pills and she takes each pill individually and swallows each pill and the people who write wrote write the series um and direct the series actually went and researched researched real um a victim you know real pe- people who had attempted real people who attempted suicide and researched suicide uh the main character has um borderline personality disorder and so they re- obviously they've researched that in great detail to try and, and they had uh, um you know sort of experts um who were helping them mental health experts helping them with the show and everything because one of the things they, they, they sort of found out was that in a lot of tv shows and films people take a whole load of pills in one go you know, you always see these scenes where people are just guzzling <laughs> pills or, um, you know, just doing very dramatic things to commit suicide. And actually, it is true that people people do commit suicides in very violent ways, specifically, especially men, um, which is why men often succeed more when it comes to suicide than women, because they often use more violent means than women. Um, I, you know, I won't go into all the details, but um, I'm sure everyone can imagine. Um, but actually, the people are very deliberate and people don't guzzle whole handfuls of pills. They take each pill individually. Um, and when I was watching this on TV, I found this quite chilling. I thought I never thought about it that way, but actually when I take painkillers, I don't throw like two painkillers in my mouth. I take one individually. That kind of makes sense. So it can be quite a deliberate act. So if you can get somebody in a period, even if they're very calm and you can kind of talk to them about it, you can, it's time sensitive. You can kind of at least try and prevent it. Another myth is that if you ask a person about suicidal intentions, um, you'll encourage the person to kill themselves. I know so many people that would probably not ask somebody, are you having thoughts about harming yourself? I think I think lots of people will shy away from the subject of suicide. They'll shy away from asking somebody, are you feeling suicidal? Are you thinking, are you having suicidal ideation? Are you thinking about killing yourself? Because they don't want, they think if they ask that, they'll put the idea in the person's head or they'll somehow, you know, weirdly, magically ensure that they do try to commit suicide. 
And actually, in reality, the opposite is true. If you think somebody is about to kill themselves or they're thinking about it or planning it, asking someone directly about their suicidal feelings will often lower their anxiety level and act as a deterrent. People want want to know that, you know, they're being noticed. They want to know that they're there. They want to know that they're important. They want to know that they matter. And it's true that some people might disappear, go missing, want to kill themselves, don't want anyone knowing they're doing it. But actually, a lot of people are in a lot of emotional turmoil and pain and they want it to be recognized, you know. Um, And I think talking to somebody about suicidal tendencies is going to be really, really hard. You know, it's like Neelix isn't going to go tell the entire crew, oh, by the way, my complete view of, you know, the afterlife, that my family that I thought I was going to see, that I've been missing all these years, I'm never going to see again. My complete view of the afterlife has completely changed. I'm actually thinking about killing myself. He's not going to say that. No, he actually lies to Chakotay, doesn't he, about what he saw in his vision even. You know, he's he's quite... Uh, you know, I was going to say duplicitous. That sounds like a judgment in a way. But, you, you know, he's he's very deliberately misleading other people about his own state of mind. Yeah, and, and that's the idea that suicidal people are fully intent on dying. I mean, it obviously all depends on the individual and the particular situation. But, I mean, and that's another thing about mental health. You have to take everybody as an individual situation because nobody's really in the same situation, you know, and we're all unique. But... In most cases, suicidal people are actually undecided, even right up into the last minute. So about whether living, living or dying. Um, you know, so it, it, there is this, there is a truth in it that if people can get the support and help they need, you can prevent a tragedy from occurring. And I sort of feel like that's sort of the situation with Neelix. I also feel like the situation with Worf in, um, Worf in the episode Ethics, the TNG season five episode Ethics. Now that's a bit of a different case because that's about, suicide because he doesn't believe that he has a good quality of a good standard of life you know the the quality his quality of life is going to be so hampered by him his uh injury and the fact that he's paralyzed that he won't be a proper Klingon anymore but he's still sort of undecided underneath it all and the fact that they you know don't agree to help him commit suicide immediately but that they try and talk to him about it admittedly I think Riker's a bit (laughs) A bit aggressive, maybe. But I would say in lots of these these cases in Star Trek, they're c- not completely decided on what they're about to do. And I think that's quite realistic. I think there's these um, myths that we have in our society um, about suicide. And I think part of, the, part of those myths exist. I mean, there's many more. I won't go into all of them. I mean, this idea that suicide um, only, only occurs to people who are very lonely, which isn't necessarily true. Um, or suicide occurs to... Um, you know, it occurs to people from certain classes. I mean, weirdly, there's us, there's some myth idea, myth, myth uh, that people from certain backgrounds, you know, contemplate suicide more than other people, which is completely, utterly false. Um, and that suicide happens without warning. And actually studies reveal that a suicidal person gives many warnings and clues, um, regarding their suicidal intentions. And that would definitely be the case of 13 reasons why the main character, um, signposts that she's feeling suicidal many times um, and is basically either ignored, overlooked or not believed. Um, and people who talk about suicide don't complete suicide. So the idea of someone's talking about it um, means that they're not going to do it is is completely wrong. I mean, eight out of 10 people who take their own lives give definite warnings of suicidal intentions before they do it. Uh, and so 
even if you never know why someone's done it, eight out of 10 people will give some sort of indication that they are suicidal before they do commit suicide. But the warnings, I guess, might be missed. I mean, one of the things that I think is quite effective in that episode, Mortal Coil, is when Neelix goes to see Seven, although he's quite calm, he is acting slightly strangely and the things he's saying are slightly worrying to the viewer. It's kind of obvious to the viewer where things are tending, but Seven is completely oblivious because, you know, because she's seven of nine and she doesn't really understand humans and human emotions and so on. Uh, she just doesn't get it. She doesn't pick up on the kind of nuance. She doesn't pick up on the sort of subtext of what he's saying in a way. Um, conversely, in the episode Night Terrors, which is another episode where Worf uh, briefly uh, actually, you know, gets the knife out and is ready to plunge it into his chest or whatever um troy now okay to be fair troy's an empath like she should be good at this kind of thing but what we see is Worf have this kind of mental crisis really on the bridge leave his post go straight to his quarters uh get out the knife um and troy you know we, we don't see what she's doing but we see her kind of looking concerned and then she kind of rushes in just as in time to stop him um she's obviously picked up on his odd behavior uh just in, in walking away from his post, in a sense, and, and gone to, to check what's happening. Yeah, Troy is, you know, kind of semi-psychic, so she has a big advantage there. But, I mean, I suppose you could say that um, people do often miss those signs, or they misinterpret them, or they, uh, yeah, sometimes they don't take them seriously enough, sometimes they just don't really understand what they're being told, in a way. And I guess that's part of that kind of, you know, sort of, autopsy process in a way they're kind of going over in the in the wake of a suicide i think there are so many questions and so many uncertainties and so many there's so much kind of counterfactual bargaining and kind of trying to work out you know if i'd only said this would this have happened or you know why didn't we do this or that or the other you know and uh, having you know had a uh, friend who sort of went you know has been through all of that recently you know i'm kind of aware that the amount of kind of questioning that goes on and the amount of kind of um you know, oh, if only this had happened instead of that had happened, or if only this thing had worked out differently. Um, you know, I think that is quite um, a big part of it. But I think it's interesting when you, you know, you're talking about these myths and this idea of demystifying things and trying to present suicide or attempted suicide accurately. And obviously, it's an important topic. It's a sensitive topic. In some ways, it feels that the right thing to do is to be accurate, uh, because that shows a kind of respect for how serious the issue is. On the other hand, there's a whole raft of uh, additional issues surrounding suicide and the presentation of suicide, um, where, yes, it's good to talk about it in some circumstances insofar as it's, it's good to, it's better to discuss it than to kind of brush it under the rug and treat it as a kind of unspeakable taboo or whatever. Um, but there are also often quite strict rules about how you know, how journalists, for example, should report suicide, how the media should present it. I mean, that showed 13 Reasons Why. Personally, to me, I thought was an amazing piece of drama, absolutely heartbreaking, uh, very shocking, um, very moving. You, you know, the message that I took away from that was this sort of terrible, terrible waste of this, you know, brilliant young woman whose who's life was kind of thrown away because of these awful experiences that she'd had and the terrible kind of sadness and loss of that. But equally, there was a big controversy about 
whether that show was seen to be glamorizing suicide and whether it could lead to uh teenagers watching it actually you know taking their own lives as a result and there was a lot of kind of uh debate around that and they actually ended up going back and because i think you watched it recently you watched the edited version where they mm, i believe yeah. took out the suicide scene yeah which to me seems strange because on I understand why they did it. And, and part of it is to do with being specific. And, you know, when you come to reporting guidelines and so on, often uh, the indication is to try and a- avoid sort of dwelling on details. I've got actually, I've, I've printed out from the Samaritans a list of things that journalists are supposed to consider when, when reporting suicide. Uh, and number one is leave out technical details about the method, such as describing the number or types of pills taken, etc. Uh, there are various other things. Avoid dramatic headlines, such as suicide epidemic. Uh, include references to support groups. Treat social media with particular caution. Don't mention websites or networks that glamorise suicide. Avoid sensationalist pictures or videos. Uh, be particularly aware of young people who might be reading um try not to give the story undue prominence with a front cover splash for example uh don't brush over the complex realities uh avoid speculation about the immediate trigger for the suicide and use statistics with caution and i think journalists are generally speaking quite careful about these issues i I know this because i wrote a feature for the guardian uh a little while ago about various people whose lives had either been saved or kind of turned around by Star Trek. And one of them was Dan Davidson from the Trek Geeks Network, who told me his story, which he's talked about on his podcast uh, as well, about how watching the Deep Space Nine episode, uh, Captive Pursuit, at a particular moment where he was kind of on the verge of taking his own life, was kind of, that was the thing that talked him down from the legend, since that was the thing that kind of distracted him long enough to kind of reconsider and to... um to change his mind about doing that. And I was quite struck because I wrote up his account the way that he told it to me. And then when I saw the piece in the newspaper, they'd edited it and they'd edited it to avoid. And I'm going to do the same thing here, which, because I think I, I need to, but you know, I'll, I'll try to be not, not going to too much detail about it. I mean, I was quite interested to ask him because, because he had, he had a gun basically and he had the gun in his mouth, as he told me, uh, at the point where he changed his mind. And I sort of thought, from the point of view of me trying to understand the story, I was kind of wondering, well, where did you get hold of the gun? You know, what's what, all that sort of story? Well, in fact, the journalists or the uh, sub-editor's response was completely opposite. They basically they took out any reference to the gun until later on when it was kind of... Uh, it, when he said, oh, and I put the gun down. And I sort of was reading, I thought, this doesn't really make sense because I haven't mentioned that there... You, you know, it looks like I haven't mentioned that there even was a gun. But, you know, maybe that's being a bit overzealous. But that clearly the intention there was we try not to be specific. We try not to talk about the method. We try to be kind of as vague as possible about these things um, in a way. And and that is the kind of almost the default journalistic good practice. Now, I suppose part of the argument with 13 Reasons Why is that by showing the scene where the young woman commits suicide, we shouldn't, that's another thing, the whole issue about using those words, where, where she takes her own life, I should say, because using the word commit suicide is another big uh, no-no because it suggests that to take your own life is a kind of crime or is something to be um, judged in a sense. Or, or that you're committed to it and you can't necessarily know what people's thoughts are, right? Yeah, so you could say take your own, yeah. My understanding is it's more to do with the idea that like, you commit a crime, you commit a murder, and oh, then it's okay. kind of a okay. moralising statement. Although that is the, the general kind of word that we use. 
But I mean, I was just quite struck watching that series. I felt very sad by that point. I felt very sorry for her. I felt it was all quite awful, but it is a very, uh, it's quite a beautiful series in some ways. Um, when it came to the suicide scene, I really didn't want to watch it. I sort of thought, because the time, the way the story is presented, the time frame of it, it all takes place really afterwards. And then it's a series of flashbacks. And it didn't really occur to me that we were actually going to have to see it. And I was quite, um, you know, when I realised that that was the, that was the scene that was coming on the screen, I was sort of slightly horrified by it because I think it was more, um, gruelling in some ways than the, the rather sad and kind of, I don't know, I don't know. It, it's hard to describe. I mean, I think it's a very powerful, very moving series and it is quite shocking and it is quite, um, gritty in various other respects. But I suppose I sort of felt like I didn't really want to watch it at that point. Um, and I think it's interesting that that's the scene that, you know, if I'd watched it now, I wouldn't have seen it. I wouldn't have had to watch it. And I wonder what impact that has on you as a viewer and sort of on how you process that story. Whether it's something that, that I suppose what I felt at the time was I felt like I didn't want to watch it, but that that was kind of wrong and that, you know, this is what this story is about and we should have to, I don't know, should have to watch it, should have to kind of recognise uh, this this moment that we're, that the whole series is built around this moment Um and that we should have to kind of face it. But I didn't want to face it. Do you know what I mean? Watching it, I really didn't want to face that scene. Um, and I suppose there is this sort of question, you, you know, what are the ethics of depicting something accurately like that on screen? Or is it better to skirt around? Is it better to just cut to the next day or cut to, you, you know, whatever it is, the family crying, you know, afterwards? Or do, do you know what I mean? To kind of skirt around these things, these tricky questions, I think, for, uh, you know, creative people to negotiate. I have several thoughts about this. Um, one, I would say, is actually just to link into this, there is a suicide in the most recent adaptation of Battlestar Galactica, the most modern version of Battlestar Galactica. And I'm sure that some of our listeners will remember this. There is a character, a young woman, who you follow for most of the series, actually, who then ends up killing herself. I won't mention her name in case anyone hasn't actually watched it. But she shoots herself and you don't actually see her shoot herself as far as I can remember. You see her open up her locker. She's a, she's a member of the um, Air Force and she pulls out the blaster or phaser weapon or whatever it is, the gun that they use in the future. Um, and then you, I think, hear a bang or something and you don't see it, but you, you, you know that she's kill herself um and i remember finding that really distressing to watch partly because i really cared about this character but also because i mean i knew she was very unhappy and very depressed but like i had i guess i just hadn't put it two and two together in my mind and contemplated that they really were going to end this character's life in this way Uh, and i did not need to see her do that (laughs) so i felt similar to you in that respect I didn't see the scene where um, the character Hannah, ba- Hannah Baker, the character in Thirteen Reasons Why, Thirteen Reasons Why Kills Herself, um, because, like you said, I'm watching the edited version, which has been changed since there's been this backlash and um, outcry about it. At the beginning of each season, there the actors uh, deliver a a sort of piece to camera um, right at the beginning of the intro, uh, sort of explaining about the themes of the season and um, and themes of the show. And at the end of every episode, there is a website link that you can go to where you can seek help if you're suffering from any sort of mental distress as a result of watching the show or if you have any sort of thoughts of harming yourself or suicidal 
thoughts. So they've put all of that in place, I think, since you probably watched it. That was all there, I think, uh, originally, to be honest. I mean, I think they had... It's not like they weren't aware that this was an issue, if you know what I mean, that they weren't aware that it was a delicate topic. But I think even despite that, uh, a lot of people felt that they that it was really irresponsible, really what they did. And th- I think there was evidence. There was a an increase in uh, suicide by teenagers in the kind of year or so after the show first aired. Now, I don't think there was any specific evidence that those teenagers who killed themselves had necessarily seen the show or, 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 you know what, but there was a kind of statistical, I suppose, an indication there that made people very concerned. And I think that's why they then went and, and decided to take out that scene. But I mean, I don't know. It's hard. You see, I can't imagine watching that show and then thinking, oh, that's the, yeah, clearly that's the right thing to do. I mean, I don't, I don't think you watch it and think, oh, good on Hannah Baker. She, you know, she kind of got her revenge on these people by, because she not only takes her own life, but she records these tapes kind of explaining the ways in which all of her friends and the counsellor at school, all these people kind of, I don't know, I suppose, bear some responsibility for what happened to her to some extent. And I think some people see that as a kind of, almost like a sort of, not quite vengeful, but a kind of a powerful act in a way. And I don't know, I sort of thought, maybe there's that element to it, but ultimately... It just feels very kind of wasted and tragic and kind of, I don't know, do you know what I mean? Like you kind of, you just wish that she could make a different decision and then you realise, well, we, we, it's already happened as far as the show's concerned. You know, that's not, it's not possible. It kind of puts you in the position of that kind of bargaining of kind of thinking, you know, if only there's another way out of this story. But, you know, we know from the very first episode that that's where it's heading. I think the problem with this is, though, that we're watching it as adults. I think it's very different if you're a teenager in a high school or secondary school environment. And I think there's this this quote that's used in the Jesse Bering book where he says, and he does talk about 13 Reasons Why. So I would urge anyone, if they're interested, to read um, this book. It's not a happy book. I would warn you, don't read it if you are feeling um, like mentally stressed or unhappy at the moment. Only read it if you're in a good mental state. Um, but he does say there's this um, phrase, um, uh, this quote that, um, oh, hang on, wait a second, I'll find it. Is it the permanent solution to a temporary problem? Yes, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, and he says that this has always rubbed him the wrong way. After all, some problems are actually quite permanent. And it's the perception of the problem is that is, is what matters. But it rings true for teenagers dealing in intolerable but passing drama from their classmates. And I think that's a good point, that high school is a very highly charged emotional environment where people are thrown together with peers that they aren't necessarily close to or they don't you're thrown to but thrown together by circumstance you don't choose the people you go to high school with or you um and you know and and you so you're kind of not necessarily choosing your friends almost really um and it's a, a, sh- a short period of your life where everything's very intense and you are going through a lot of rapid change and you're very much affected by what the people around around you think of you on a daily day daily day-to-day basis and High school ends, secondary school ends, teen, adolescence ends. Um, but when you're in the midst of it, it's very hard to see your way out of it. It feels like that's your entire world. And so I think there is a fantasy element to 13 Reasons Why for a teenager, especially a disgruntled or angst-ridden teenager, because it's that idea that by dying and leaving behind extensive, co- extensive like notes or tapes or recordings 
of um, all the wrongs that were done to you by your classmates, you can somehow ruin your classmates after this or get attention or um, basically affect and change things. And really from the outside, like what you're saying is actually, I think the more realistic view, which is from the adult point of view is that, you know, you're young. If you just bear with it, if you just hold on and you get some, some actual support and some mental health support and, Maybe, you know, the school helps you in a better situ, put you in a better situation. If you just hold on, you just got a few more years left and then you're out of high school. And then the whole wild world is open to you and the world is bigger and more diverse. And there's more people there and more people who understand you and more diverse, interesting people that you're going to meet. And that high school will just be this unpleasant, like sort of horrible memory and you won't forever be trapped in this role that you're given at school. And there's no need for you to end your life now. You're so young. You have all this life ahead of you that's going to be so much better than it is now. Um, and I'm not sure that's what teenagers feel when they're watching 13 Reasons Why. The thing that I would say is, I understand that the suicide might have been graphic. And I don't necessarily need to see the suicide. Because literally, the episode before that, I watched the main character get raped in a hot tub. And that was really upsetting for me. And so I would argue that maybe mentioning suicide or um, talking about how people commit suicide or the details or showing in-depth suicide on television is probably something that should be should be looked at and should be considered and should be... Um, people should be cautious about it, you know, because it can be triggering. But you know what also can be triggering? Sexual violence on television. And it's freaking everywhere, you know, and it's in Star Trek too. So we saw not just one rape, but two rapes in 13 Reasons Why. Not just to mention that, we saw the main character get beaten to a pulp, you know. So like the idea that people are saying, well... I mean, I guess the, the, the thing is, the series is about suicide. So that's why people are talking about it. It's about suicide. They show the suicide. If they say they're going to make people think about suicide. So, you know, it's, it's going to trigger things for people. It's going to glamorize it, right? But you know what? I think they also glamorize sexual violence amongst teenagers. I mean, actually, I didn't just see one person get beaten up in this show. I, got, I saw several young boys get beaten up. But does that really glamorize? You see, I, I think I never... I think to me, the word glamorize means something quite quite specific. Like I would say... Quentin Tarantino arguably glamorizes, well, you argue, I think does glamorize violence. Now that's, you know, I enjoy his films, or whatever, but I, I do think that that's what I understand by glamorizing. I don't think that just showing something is the same thing as glamorizing it. And I don't know, I mean. Yeah, I don't yeah, think I mean, they did, I, I don't think know, they again, did glamorize like the sexual, the sexual assault, violence. I found very shocking and very heartbreaking in a way. And it, I suppose that's the thing about that, that show, but you're right. We, well, I was going to say we're not the target audience. I don't know who the target audience is. I assume the target audience really is a kind of teen audience because it's adapted from a young adult book. I don't even know why I ended up watching it on Netflix however many years ago, but I got completely hooked by it. But I suppose it's true. I sort of watched it as a parent more than as a teenager, if you know what I mean. I mean, my son's five. I'm not going to have to deal with any of this for a while. But I guess that's partly the level on which I found it really shocking and really scary is that the complete different worlds that the teenagers and the adults in the show seem to be living in to the extent that the the parents have no idea what their kids are doing uh what kind of trauma they're going through what turmoil they're dealing with um and that's almost one of the teachers also have no idea really what's going on even the counselor doesn't seem to have much idea what's going on that was almost one of the things that i found the saddest and the most 
frightening about it is just that sense that you know these kids basically are living they are you know it is this very intense world of high school and whatever and and they're completely um it they it can feel like they're quite unsupported in a sense because the adults just do not understand and there is no communication no meaningful communication as much as they're trying and it's not the parents at all you know hopeless absent awful parents or whatever a lot of them are kind of trying but they just cannot bridge that gap somehow and there is something quite um tragic about that in itself i think so i don't know i guess you know people can debate whether this or that show glamorizes uh you know this issue or or that issue i I don't know i I didn't feel that it was a show that glamorized anything really i thought it was a very un it was a very slickly produced show like it's it's very well written and well directed and well acted and everything but i don't feel there's anything it doesn't make me want to go and live that high school lifestyle it makes me think god what a terrifying terrible awful you know uh traumatic experience that is I don't think I don't think it glamorized um, suicide. I don't think it glamorized sexual assault or violence or anything. I also think it didn't glamorize the parents' um, experience of losing a child, and I think that that was also important as well. I think if you're, I guess the idea is that you have to be concerned about what teenagers are watching because they have more impressionable minds than adults, right? So they haven't got as fully developed brains as adults. They aren't able to make adult decisions or um you know the sort of responsible decisions that adult make adults make ha 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 i think there's a lot of irresponsible adults out there but um in the case you know but i also think that you know they don't show the suicide but they show her parents finding her dead right afterwards and they don't show her necessarily but they show her parents reactions and that was really really awful and i feel that for any parent who may have a child and regardless how old your child is that's got to be a very frightening scene to watch and for any parent who's lost a child who i presumably probably wouldn't be watching this show because they probably would make the choice not to watch it um but that would be i think that would be triggering so i think that to a certain extent where i understand we don't want to trigger thing trigger um upsetting um emotions and thoughts for people um just through our entertainment you know through our drama and our tv and everything but if if a show and i would include star trek in this as well there's an entertainment aspect of star trek but if a show like 13 reasons why or like star trek has a didactic message then you have to understand that they're doing more than just entertaining you they're trying to teach you about something they're trying to show you a truth aren't they and that's what 13 Reasons Why I was trying to do. I don't think it was trying to make suicide glamorous or entertaining. It was trying to teach you something about how people become suicidal, how they get to this point, you know, and how the people around them sort of don't help them and ignore them to the point where they um, actually end up, you know, following through with their plan. And I think in, sa- in the same thing with Star Trek, I mean, the question about whether or not Worf should... Um, kill himself um in ethics you know about his quality of life you know can he be a klingon and still be paralyzed you know um what is the ethics behind him committing suicide you know when he's got such a young son or about asking his best friend to do it you know Riker. you know that that's that's there's a didactic, a didactic message there. You know, we're not watching Worf be paralyzed for the fun of it. We're watching Worf be paralyzed and wrestle with this decision so that we can think through these issues ourselves, so we can talk about these issues. The episode's called Ethics. It's exploring ethics. And so 
I'm not sure if Ethics is anyone's favourite Star Trek episode. It probably isn't. But Star Trek's also had that element of serious didactic exploration in it as well. And sometimes thinking intelligently about your what you're watching isn't just about being entertained. Does that make sense? And so I guess suicide on television would be about that. Like, I don't think any of us are watching suicide on television for fun, to be entertained, to find it a glamorous thing to watch. We're watching stuff like this so that we can think about these important issues. Um, It's like a lesson there. I think that's true. And I mean, I suppose ethics, I always took the title to be primarily referring to the kind of medical ethics storyline. But I think you're right. You could say it applies equally to Worf's storyline of what is he going to do. And they do set it up as a kind of dilemma with two sides. They they put Picard, I mean, I feel it's a little bit of a stretch how kind of on board Picard is with the idea that Worf's going to commit suicide. And he's sort of saying, you know, well, we must, you know, respect other cultures and we shouldn't impose our own values. And, you know, maybe for a Klingon, that's the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, yes, we can live with disabilities, but, you know, Klingons can't. And for them, being disabled is worse than being dead. And, you know, all these sort of things that kind of really slightly stick for me but um but the show is absolutely trying to present it as a slightly more of a gray issue i suppose than uh than it might do in another situation and we get the same thing again in sons of moog on ds9 where this time it's Worf's brother kern who uh wants to kind of commit this ritual suicide because his family's been dishonored um and interestingly Worf does try to help him to begin with but then once uh, a kind of intervention is made, almost a bit like what you're saying about buying some time to think about it. Once the intervention is made by Dax, um, he says that he'd kind of been telling himself it was an honourable ritual, but now on reflection, he sees it in the kind of more human terms as murder or, as, you know, as something uh, that's kind of unjustifiable, you know, for him to partake in this kind of assisted suicide, I suppose. Um, and then they come up with this quite interesting solution i suppose in that they basically give kern a new identity so they find a way uh to effectively kill his well not his personality because i suppose he retains some of his personality but they they find a way to kill his identity to kill who he is while not killing him sort of in actuality um and it's a weird one because on some levels it feels on some level it feels to me like is that really a satisfactory outcome or a good solution to this problem does it just sort of sidestep the problem with a bit of kind of sci-fi magic on the other hand watching it i kind of felt like does kern really get what a lot of people who are you know feeling like they're at that point that they want to take their own life um what they're experiencing which is that it's not necessarily that they want to die they don't want to go through the experience of dying uh particularly it's that there's something about their life that they are desperate to escape that is so unbearable that they can't keep on living with it. And in a way, what Kern gets, he gets a completely fresh slate. He gets to almost live his life over. He gets all of that baggage taken away, all of that shame. You know, as I say with O'Brien, it was about this shame of, of kind of thinking he'd murdered this cellmate. Um, you know, all of that gets wiped clean and he gets to kind of start again. In some ways, is that what the, you know, the suicidal person would dream of if you could magically offer them that uh you know maybe in a lot of cases they wouldn't go through with actually killing themselves if that option was available i don't know so i think it's kind of an interesting episode in that it um presents this very sci-fi solution to the problem which is both kind of 
strangely problematic, but also seems quite fitting. Yeah, I think that um, I really struggle with that. <laughs> I think that I also sort of maybe saw it a little bit as like, oh, I don't know, like some sort of therapy or medication that was going right. to make the, make the person like he's got medicated yeah yeah like you know like he had some sort of um personality disorder and he was being medicated to sort of help him with i don't know um that's like a metaphor i guess but uh, i think also it's it's that the the writers were like well we don't want the storyline to go on beyond one episode so we're somehow going to have to solve this um and i'd you know we don't want him to die necessarily uh so i would be curious to i mean to see what kind of what the episode would have been like if he actually did end up killing himself at the end of the episode. And I guess in a way we do kind of have an episode like that with Voyager, don't we? With Death Wish, um, which is a season two episode, which stars, um, what stars? has a, is a story about um, a Q, uh, not the Q, not the famous Q, but we can call him Quinn. I think that's what he's known as, uh, who wishes to die. And, he actually does end up, spoiler alert, you haven't watched the episode, uh, I'm telling you now, he uh, actually does end up being successful at the end of it. And it, this this whole sort of trial, or I guess it's sort of a hearing, uh, which Janeway is uh, presiding over between Q and Quinn, or the Q cont- continuum and Quinn, uh, about whether or not Quinn should be allowed to end his life. Because obviously they're omnipotent you know they're omnip- i think that's the word um where they're basically beings that are, are live immortal. In etern- immortal that's it yeah they live in an, t- an eternal life um and he's you know done he's, he doesn't want to be uh, immortal anymore and but i feel in a way so that is an entertaining episode that's very entertaining and i, I know i said you know you probably can't be entertained by a story about suicide but that is very entertaining but i also feel that that's not really strictly a suicide episode because although he does end his life you know he's been immortal for what like millennia you know and it's 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 kind of a little bit like when a really elderly person who's lived a long long happy life and lots of exciting things you know is really suffering and really in pain and they're coming to the very end of their lives and you know they just sort of sort of say I need, I want it to end. I want a good death. It's a little bit like that, you know, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't feel sorrow when somebody uh, very elderly dies. It doesn't matter how old somebody is. You're never really prepared for the loss of somebody. But I just think about my great grandfather, right? So my great grandfather lived to be well over a hundred. He'd had this big, exciting, active life. He'd survived a genocide um, when he was about six years old, when his entire village was murdered. He'd made it across the world to another continent, another, he, he came to America. Um, you know, he'd done lots of things. He was a very eccentric character. And just literally a few, a few weeks before, well, I'm almost like a few days, really, a week or two before he died, he just said, I don't really feel like eating anything. And he stopped eating. And, you know, there was big concern in the sort of um, care home that he was in that he wasn't eating, trying to get him to eat, trying to persuade him to eat. And he's like, you know what, I'm done. I don't really want to eat anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of okay. I don't need to eat anymore. And then one day he just said, I'm going to go take a nap. I feel like I want to sleep for a bit. I feel like I'm ready to sleep now. And then went to bed and died in his sleep, uh, which obviously, you know, his family, um, including me, were very, very sad that, you know, he died. And um, this caused great ch- grief to his children. 
Um, some of whom he'd outlived. Weirdly, he'd outlived some of his own children, but the children that were still alive were very distressed by this. But it's I, I felt a little bit like when I was watching this episode that that was the kind of decision. It was the decision of somebody who'd lived for a long time and had a really interesting life. Um, so the suicide in Death Wish doesn't have the same sort of sorrow attached to it, I think, that... You know, the suicide in um, 13 Reasons Why it does, or, or the suicide um, in the TNG episode Eye of the Beholder, where, you know, this young man commits suicide very suddenly and you can see Riker's reaction. Um, Riker tries to prevent him and Riker's just frustrated and grief stricken and shock- shocked afterwards. Whereas Janeway is sad to see Quinn die. But, you know, he has his last words. He holds his hand, holds her hand as he dies. And then he's dead. And, you know, they're all just sort of standing around a sick bay. <laughs> and they all seem fine, you know. Um, so it uh, that's an interesting episode because it addresses the idea of choosing whether or not to die. The, the freedom of choice, um, you know, to, to decide to live or to decide to die. Um, but the choice is being made by somebody who doesn't really have a huge amount to lose because he's kind of experienced everything because he's an immortal, om- omnipotent being. And I suppose it's interesting. I mean, it is on one level an episode about suicide. They talk a lot about the ethics of suicide. I mean, they have, as you said, this kind of court case, courtroom scenario where they talk about Vulcan ideas about suicide and Bolian ideas about suicide and and so on. But I think it's also, I suppose, in a sense, what you're describing is it's kind of a debate about euthanasia. And actually the the Bolian example, I think, that Janeway or one of them brings up is this idea of, what does she call it, the double effect principle or something that, that you can, uh, that you can give medication that relieves pain, knowing that it will also cause death and that that is kind of justified. Uh, a bit like we might, you know, give someone morphine, knowing that it's likely to, um, sort of hasten their death. I mean, so I think it's an interesting one. And, and I suppose the, like, this is often the case in Star Trek where you have these kind of allegorical stories. Sometimes it can be a little bit unclear where the allegory is, where the allegory is pointing at a particular moment. And you get that actually within the episode when they say we're going to visit the Q continuum and they say, well, you can't visit the Q continuum. Well, we can kind of allegorically visit the Q continuum, uh, and have a kind of representation of it. And I think maybe that's part of what's going on there is, yes, is, is it exactly an episode about suicide in the way of these other episodes that we're talking about? Maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it's, you know, it is partly about that. It's about other uh, elements as well. I mean, Star Trek does that. I think uh, another episode that you might think of in some ways is kind of similar, or almost the flip side of that is half a life where you've got this guy who's expected to commit suicide at 60 by his culture. So again, like the Q expect this guy to go on living forever in half a life, those people expect him to end his life, whether he wants to or not. Now, again, technically, that is a kind of ritual suicide. That is a kind of cultural, uh, culturally endorsed suicide that's, that that episode is about. But I think in some ways watching it, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like a death sentence because of the fact that it's not really that man's personal choice. It's the fact that he's being told to do this. He's being kind of um, forced to do it to a certain extent. Uh, both really powerful episodes, though, I think. I mean, Death Wish, I think, is an interesting one. It is very funny. It, it has, does have a kind of knockabout quality. But I think the drama lands. I think it is sad. I think it is quite powerful. Um, 
yes, it's true. It's not tragic in the way that, you know, a teenager killing themselves is tragic. But it's still, I think there is a sense of regret. I mean, Janeway does kind of make this impassioned plea towards the end when she uh, decides the Q should be allowed to be mortal, that she basically says, you know, why don't you just try being mortal? You know, and I suppose you will die eventually like we all do. But, you know, you could try that for a bit. Uh, don't don't rush this. Don't kind of rush things along. Um, but ultimately, there's that sense that he kind of isn't able to do that. He's sort of not able to to kind of fit into that world. Um, a little bit like actually in the episode Homeward, uh, the next gen episode, you've got the guy who is from a sort of primitive, uh, alien culture and is inadvertently exposed to the enterprise and discovers that, you know, there are spaceships and all this stuff. Um, and he can't unknow what he now knows and he can't kind of really uh, you know, either he, he's going to go back to his people and he either can't tell any of them what he knows or he tells them and they will think he's mad or he kind of lives in the 24th century uh, totally cut off from his own people. So in a sense, purely through this act of, you know, of, of discovering knowledge about his, uh, about the universe and about his place in it and so on, kind of makes life intolerable for him. Um, and so he kills himself again in this kind of quite often in Star Trek, you get what are described as ritual suicides. You know, so we've got the Klingon ritual suicide. This guy kills himself in what we're told is a ritual suicide. Um, and Picard again has this quite sort of regretful tone. He, where he says he wishes that he could have bridged the gap between their two cultures, that he could have found a way to sort of exist in the, the modern world. Um, but he couldn't. He just didn't feel able to, just as I suppose Quinn didn't feel able to exist on Voyager as a, you know, a member of the crew or whatever. Now, of course, we know, you know, it's Star Trek. Uh, they, they're never going to keep Quinn on board because um, as they as they comment, he knows too much. You know, he, he's um, omniscient. He knows everything about everything. It's kind of, you know, he's a kind of narrative uh, disaster from the point of view of a TV show uh, because he's too sort of overpowered. But, um, he, you know, even without his kind of magical powers, he, he just knows too much. But... Um, I think there is that sense in both our episodes of, of that kind of sadness, but you're right. It is different from the kind of, um, I suppose these more sort of shocking, maybe in the next gen episode, there is an element of, of shock there, but it is more just this kind of sadness. Yeah. It didn't, um, it, it wasn't possible. It didn't work out that that person couldn't, couldn't cope anymore. Same in the defector, actually, you know, the defector, uh, has given up everything, he thinks it was worth it. He discovers it was a kind of worthless sacrifice. He has nothing to live for anymore. Um, and he takes his own life. It's that kind of, I don't know, it, it's, a, and it adds, I suppose, a sort of poignancy to these episodes, um, in a way that it is a kind of, you know, it adds a kind of real sadness. Adds, I suppose it gives a slight sense of tragedy, um, to them, but they, they don't maybe have the kind of shock value or the kind of shocking effect of, um, some of those stories. Although you could say, I mean, Cogenitor might be an example. I think the suicide at the end of Cogenitor has a bit more kind of shock value because it's sort of, you don't really see it coming and it kind of really uh, adds weight to what's already a pretty serious uh, kind of debate and a pretty serious situation that's going on. It kind of, um, you know, sort of underscores that in a pretty major way. And I guess there's all those episodes where, it's not direct suicide, but I feel like the characters are inching themselves that way, uh, inching themselves forward. So 
like I, I'm thinking particularly like Garrick um, and Balana, like um, you know, I mean, there's more more than just Garrick and Balana. There's lots of characters that do self destructive things to themselves um, because they are suffering from you know mental distress or emotional pain. But you know, some some of these characters' actions are getting close to escalating into possibly suicide further on down the line. I think specifically with Balana, uh, when she st- when she starts to sort of um, do those really violent, you know, take part of those really violent um, holodeck um, sort of scenarios. I think she's, and she, you know, she's kind of getting close to, she's definitely, it's definitely a form of self-harm. And she's, I think she's heading towards a direction of, um, you know, sort of um, suicide further on down the line. And then Garrick, you know, with his addiction to that, sort of implant in his brain um which he's really sort of i mean if the implant implant itself is causing him a distress but he was using the implant to begin with because it was actually pleasurable and he was using it because he himself was in constant emotional and mental distress and he takes in that episode he takes what bashir tells him is basically gonna you know he's a dangerously he's, he's definitely taking risks in terms of the doses that he's taking isn't he that you know Bashir is saying that could kill you uh, and he sort of says I don't care there, I think there's that sense with both of them that there's a kind of they may not be actively trying to end their lives but they're indifferent to whether that happens or not I mean I think Bellana's situation is is what you might call parasuicide um, which kind of covers these sort of behaviours that are sort of excessive risk-taking also described I think as um you know, a bit, a bit like attempted suicide often is a cry for help. I mean, to some extent, these could be, these could easily be cries for help that go wrong. And this does happen. And people sometimes do end up dying when they actually didn't mean to die. Uh, but because they were in these kind of parasuicidal, um, states, you know, she, she says to Chakotay, I'm not trying to kill myself. But at the same time, she is being very reckless with her life. She clearly doesn't really care whether she dies at that point. Yeah, and then, so that's the interesting thing. I kind of thought that, I mean, obviously, there's a whole bunch of other aspects of this we haven't covered, which I feel like is a slightly different subject, which is people um, sort of going on suicidal missions or committing suicidal acts to save other people. I'm thinking like, you know, Spock and the Wrath of Khan, Wrath of Khan he knows he's going to die, he commits a suicidal act. But that's more of a sacrifice of your own existence to take care of other people, to save other people, or to, um, for a greater good. You know, that's a slightly different, that's not suicide through some sort of mental distress. That's a choice to sort of end your life, but you're ending your life through, uh, for a different kind of reason. But kind of heroic one of the, sacrifice. Heroic sacrifice, yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I thought was, and there's a lot more of that, obviously, in Star Trek, because, well, there's a lot more of that, I think, generally in science fiction or any kind of fiction, because the heroic sacrifice has a long history doesn't it in our storytelling uh going way 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 back to prehistory um and to oral history but um the the thing that struck me as really interesting is that so picard saying that you know he had never had to a crew member who had um committed suicide or maybe committed suicide successfully he never had to write a letter like, like that to somebody's parents that struck me as um really interesting and in a way, at first, I was like, what? Seriously? Because we see quite a lot of the characters in Star Trek go through very difficult situations and very traumatic experiences and also, um, you know, um, have emotional stresses and strains and emotional difficulties. 
But at the same time, I was also quite encouraged by that. And I thought to myself, well, maybe what they're trying to show us is this future where people's mental health really is taken care of and that people are not getting to the point where they're suicidal because these things are are picked up beforehand. You know, like, especially in Starfleet, you know, maybe they're when they're going through the crew, you know, reviews, the staff reviews or whatever, they really are checking up on people's mental health, making sure that they're okay. I mean, the fact that, you know, Councillor Troy is aboard the Enterprise shows that, you know, they are counselling people. I did think when we got to the episode with Neelix um, and his um, sorrow and his difficulties, I was a little bit like, if there was ever a ship that needs a counsellor, it's Voyager. I was like, Voyager really needs a counsellor. And I was hoping that they weren't planning on just using Neelix as the counsellor. Because I was like, that's an awful lot of pressure for a man who has lost his entire family in a war. (laughs) Um, But I actually found that quite encouraging. And I think that... um, I think that maybe that's something that they might want to explore in, pre- in, in future Star Trek. And I'm sure they probably will as well, because they're exploring more to do with mental health, aren't they, in, in Discovery as well. But I found that like an encouraging thing. Well, one of the things that I thought was quite interesting about Picard was that we had this kind of backstory of Rios's former captain who took his own life. And I think it's interesting what you were saying about, you know, is this something that somehow Starfleet officers are inoculated against, or this doesn't happen, or this is, you know, very uncommon, despite the fact that we know that, you know, in the military and and veterans of the military, uh, suicide is is quite common in some ways, I think. It struck me the first time Rios mentioned it, he made some comments about his captain having his brains splattered all over the bulkhead or something. Um, And it never crossed my mind at that point that he was describing a suicide, even though actually, you know, if you talk about someone someone's brains being blown all over the wall or something. In a modern context, I think that is probably the first thing you would think of. But because they're Starfleet, because this is Star Trek, that literally just didn't cross my mind as a possibility until many episodes later, we get in the episode Broken Pieces, the kind of full story, and he explains what happened and he he describes it. Uh, and he he says, basically, he, he describes it, he says he put the phaser in his mouth and pulled the trigger. Um, again, interestingly, he used the word trigger because a phaser doesn't, well, m- maybe they do have triggers by the, by that point, but you know, in next gen phasers didn't have triggers. But anyway, um, <laughs> so, so suddenly we get this different insight on it. And I thought that was very clever in a way. And I remember watching that for the first time thinking, oh gosh, of course, yes, that is what he meant. And, and feeling like, yeah, he did kind of tell us that before, but we didn't, I don't know about you. I certainly didn't. Uh, consider the possibility that that might be how his captain had died and that that was why it was such a traumatic uh, kind of backstory for him. So I think there is that sort of element that in Star Trek we, you know, we don't... Okay, we have these storylines where people kind of go to the brink, where they come to the edge, but they generally they pull back. We have these kind of alien cultures who go through with it, uh, whether it's a Q, whether it's a Klingon, whether it's the cogenitor, whoever it is. It's very shocking to have one of our own kind of human Starfleet characters actually go through with one of these suicides. They, I mean, one that comes to mind is in Enterprise. Uh, there was the guy who was secretly an agent, a kind of uh, agent of Terra Prime, and he ends up turning a gun on himself. We have Ter- Terrell uh, in um, The Wrath of Khan, who, when he's ordered to kill Kirk, manages to to turn the gun on himself and kill himself as well. But again, that has the kind of the element of the heroic sacrifice to it in a sense. It's not so much that he's 
he's not doing it uh, to escape the misery of the situation he's in. He's actually doing it for a, you know, to save someone else's life in a sense. Um, I, I suppose the the Starfleet character we have who uh, really does, you know, go down that path is Decker in the Doomsday Machine. And interestingly, they talk about Decker being suicidal quite early on because Spock warns him that the way he's behaving was basically he's behaving recklessly uh, with the ship. Not in some ways, not unlike the way Bellana was behaving recklessly with her own safety. Um, he says that that's tantamount to suicide and therefore sufficient to have him relieved of command for being mentally unfit. And there is this kind of debate. You get that in the episode Death Wish about is the very fact that the Q wants to end his own life evidence in itself that he's mentally unstable and therefore uh, can't be allowed to sort of make decisions for himself, that someone else has to take those decisions for him. Um, and I think the Doomsday Machine is quite an interesting episode because you do have basically Decker going off on this essentially sort of suicidal mission, um, albeit that ultimately that's the thing that gives Kirk the idea that he needs to finally... Uh, you know, win the day and destroy the, the doomsday machine and, and kind of get them all out of the situation. So he's not actually, as it turns out, he's not really throwing his life away for nothing. It, it turns out to help them, just not in a way that anyone really predicted. And then there's that interesting point that he says at the end, him and Spock have this conversation about how Decker's going to be described as having died in the line of duty. So again, I suppose there's that idea of that sort of taboo about suicide and not really wanting to you know, sort of put that on the death certificate. So we're not really wanting to, um, uh, you know, say that that's what happened. And it's interesting um, in that Jesse Bering book. I mean, this is something that I suppose coroners and people like that, they, they have to be a bit circumspect about. And journalists as well, when they report deaths, they're often slightly vague where, you know, reading between the lines, uh, you know, if you hear about someone uh, a person under the train or whatever, you, you know, you kind of know really that's what's happening, but that we kind of try to skirt around these things. Um, but Jesse Bering gave an example where he asked some religious leaders for their thoughts on suicide. And one of them was, I think, a rabbi. And he said um, that they like to give the benefit of the doubt and think the person might have changed their mind uh, in between sort of starting the act and, and it finishing essentially and that therefore they they might have kind of regretted it and changed their mind uh that for example the person who jumps off a tall building on their way down thinks oh no i've made a terrible mistake and that therefore somehow that takes away the sort of i suppose the kind of sin of it uh to put it in a different context because there is the idea you know going back and that is why you know historically the People talk about committing suicide, this idea that it is kind of a crime and it is a sin and there is something morally uh, bad about it. Um, I just thought that was interesting that that rabbi was kind of trying to sort of offer almost any, uh, rather than deconstructing that whole model and basically saying this is the wrong way of thinking of it as, as sinful or as kind of wrong or as, as kind of morally uh, tarnished in that way, sort of saying, well, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt and say that, you know, I, I think maybe the person changed his mind or would have changed his mind. And maybe that's a big part of it because I mean, for those who are left behind, I have to say, you know, um, my friend who took his own life a year or so ago, I can't help thinking one of the things that seems so tragic about it is that if he'd stayed alive an ex another week, I think he would have do you, do you know what I mean? In a way, you sort of feel the person, if they could just, like you say, if they could just get through that moment, that period, they would come out of it and they would um, realise they do have things to live for and that things aren't as bad as they thought. And they would kind of look back on it and think, oh, what a terrible mistake I was about to make. Um, 
but you know that's the real tragedy and that's the sense in some ways you know i sort of started to feel that it it is almost i don't know if this is the case with all suicides but certainly in that instance it almost felt like a kind of accident or a kind of uh a something that shouldn't have happened if you know what i mean that it was just that at that moment things converged in a way that there wasn't a kind of route around that course and that therefore um in some ways it does almost feel like a kind of accidental thing that happened that that was in that moment there was no other direction to go for whatever reason um but i suppose again these are the kind of uh conversations that people have with themselves in the wake of um, someone taking their own life and you know the kind of difficult questions that people ask themselves and kind of um, trying to get at the kind of mystery at the heart of it in a way. Yeah and I think that one of the things that you do see again and again in drama and also we've seen in Star Trek is people who are left behind and although we spent a lot of this podcast like talking about the person who is suicidal or who's deciding to end their lives or succeeding in doing so, um, which is rightly what we should be talking about. Um, you're now talking about now, like the people who are left behind and um, like them having to live with it and their impressions. And anytime anybody ends their life, um, you know, it's a ripple effect, isn't it? It's like throwing a stone in a pond and it has an effect on all the people left behind and, and, and that can have far reaching consequences because that can have an effect on all the people who um, know those people who know those people who, and a good example of that is Rios in Picard. Uh, perhaps the captain, his captain, when he was ending his life, didn't think in that moment that the effect that he would have on Rios and how it would live. Rios would have to live with it and it would stay with him. And I think that, that's one of the things that's done very well in that episode um, that you do see the impact it's had on him. Uh, and, and it's, it's not something that you would want to reproach people for people who are survivors of, of suicide attempts or people who are currently having suicidal thoughts. You wouldn't want to reproach them and sort of say, think of all the people that you're going to be leaving behind. Cause that just makes them feel worse. I think, but um it is a reminder to us that we have to be responsible for our actions and that anytime we do anything, and it's not just even, it's not just suicide. Anytime we do anything, really, um, we have the potential to have an effect on a large number of people around us. And even though we feel small and insignificant in this world, uh, unless of course you're a prime minister or a president or you have some position of power, uh, you know, you, you might not think that you have much of an effect and you, you might not think you have the ability to actually make a difference or to change events but you do. Uh, and just by virtue of not being here anymore, you also have a massive effect. So uh, I think people feel very powerless in that moment. But actually, in that moment, when you're choosing to end your life, you actually are exhibiting a huge amount of power. Um, because you're going to have an effect on the people you leave behind a big effect. Uh, and that's going to have to affect on other things. And it's just, it's just going to have a knock on knock on um, effect down the road. And I think one of the things that you mentioned as well about Decker, and this is another thing I would say about the whole idea of Rios's captain ending his life is that it's different, you know, if it's a ritualistic suicide um, in it or it's Worf talking about 
wanting to to die because he's paralyzed or even if it's this poor you know young enzyme throwing himself into the i don't know photon phaser tube whatever he does uh that's obviously distressing and you know difficult to watch but there's something really really deeply disturbing about a starship captain having suicidal thoughts or being so self-destructive that he is going to possibly end his life meaning to or not meaning to there's something very very frightening about a person in authority in charge especially in Star Trek when the captain is so essential to the running of a ship that the safety of the entire crew really is in the hands of the captain and that the captain is you know I could I guess that's what I would say like the parent of the family and although Janeway never actually you know shows any suicidal thoughts or ideation or, or any tendencies she does have that period in Voyager where she's depressed and the idea that the captain's just going to hide herself away in her quarters and become deeply clinically depressed I mean so I, I felt watching Decker uh, an original series actually really quite disturbing the idea that the person at the front of the ship the helm the person in charge is so self-destructive and that is kind of like you have the power in that moment to to end your life but you also have the power in that moment to put everyone else in danger and it, it, i mean that's not necessarily what happens in the real world i suppose unless somebody is taking their own life through some violent means you know i mean there are cases like suicide by cop in the us where somebody um and i believe there's a scene even in 13 reasons why actually someone's told me where later on one of the characters tries um to um take their own life through suicide by cop so they they go into a cop uh, uh, to a police station and they pretend they have a gun or sometimes they have a gun and they wave it around hoping that someone will shoot them um but that's also a situation where you know you have the power there to um you know um provoke violence um or to um, and this is not to say that i'm you know sort of criticizing anyone that does this i think these people are in deep pain and should be treated with the utmost empathy um and i think you know when someone takes their lives takes their own life um the you know they shouldn't we shouldn't go around condemning them saying it's a sin nothing like that but often people who are left behind are angry you know partly also because they don't know why but sometimes because the person they love isn't there anymore and it wasn't their choice to be left behind. So I think that um, it's a real, it's a real struggle, isn't it? It's a real struggle and it is, it is portrayed in Star Trek. We do see it. I think it's interesting when you were talking about the captain and how shocking it is that it's a captain who is behaving in that way. I mean, I suppose Decker has already lost his own crew. He's risking Kirk's crew, but you know, maybe there's an element of, I don't know whether that makes a difference. On the other hand, you could say, I mean, Picard, similarly in First Contact, there's this sense of, you know, when a captain loses their grip, they will take risks with their own crew. And that is, you know, it's one thing to risk your own life, but to risk those people you're responsible for is something else. Of course, what you do see, and, you know, you said we never see Janeway do anything kind of uh, along those lines. We do see Janeway quite often willing to go down with the ship. And obviously this is something that captains are kind of expected to do. It's almost seen as an honourable, I mean, talking about these kind of ritual suicides, 
it is sort of almost considered an honourable thing for the captain to stay on board and go down with the ship. And sometimes there's a reason for it. I mean, if you think of George Kirk in the 2009 movie, he has to stay on board and sacrifice himself. You know, sometimes it is a kind of sacrifice. Even in, well, in Year of Hell, it's kind of an interesting one because it turns out that she's needed there to pilot the ship into the, you know, in this kind of kamikaze strike that actually ends up solving everything. But from my memory, and I haven't watched those episodes for a little while, it's not totally clear that that's why she's doing it. I don't think that really is why she... Do you know what I mean? It's, it feels a bit like this is a kind of pointless, desperate gesture, and she just cannot allow the ship to... She can't let go of the ship, and therefore she's going to die with it, in a sense. Um, and, and that is a kind of... We do see that as sort of something that is almost a kind of noble trait in these captains. I suppose maybe the key thing is though, the captain goes down, the captain has the right to go down with the ship, but the captain only goes down once the ship goes down, if you know what I mean. By which point, and, and everyone's there's nothing off for the them ship. to be, everyone's off the ship and they're all They're not, not taking not the whole the crew with them. <laughs> exactly. They're not the captain anymore anyway. You're right. They're not taking the whole crew with them. Um, although, you know, there are examples. I mean, there was uh, an air crash, wasn't there, a few years ago where it turned out that the pilot was... Um, decided to kill himself and obviously killed the 100 or 200 odd people on the plane along with him. So, you know, these things can happen. I mean, but I think I think you're right. There is something that's quite shocking about the presentation of a, a starship captain in Star Trek being in, in that kind of uh, situation. Although it's interesting. I mean, you know, seeing Janeway struggling with that depression um, was quite a brave move, I think. It is kind of destigmatizing in some ways to show that, I think, and also realistic in a way. It's kind of interesting in the eye of the beholder, they have data talking about having considered basically wiping himself um, at a point where he was kind of struggling to, I guess, put his personality together or whatever. That You, you know, I think there are these gestures that are kind of, I suppose, trying to talk about these things rather than kind of trying to pretend they don't exist. Um Another episode that I think is kind of interesting in this respect, and I didn't think of immediately because I don't think of it as a suicide episode, although it is really, is The Visitor. Um, and again, the suicide in The Visitor is, it's, he, you know, Jake doesn't take his own life, uh, because he's so miserable and he's, he feels his life is pointless and, you know, he, he doesn't want to live anymore. He does it for a reason to save his father and to kind of, um, you know, there is the element of the kind of heroic sacrifice there. But at the same time, I sort of feel like that episode, which is so uh, heavy with grief and pain and loss and and these kind of anguished questions and guilt and kind of, you know, Jake's feelings of, oh, did I give up on you too soon? Uh, could I have done something else? You know, throwing away his his life in a sense to try to make amends for this thing that's happened in the past where he's lost uh, you know, his father. I don't know. I just sort of feel there is a kind of, there's something about the kind of tone and the sort of emotional context of that story that actually fits quite well with the, with the suicide theme, if you know what I mean. And obviously you have this moment at the end where, as he says, he's doing it, I need to cut you loose. And there is that sort of idea. Sometimes people do take their own lives, telling themselves that their relatives will be better off without them. Uh, you know, O'Brien actually says the same thing to Bashir in Hard Time. He says, you know, I'm doing this uh, to protect Keiko and Molly. They'll be better off without me around kind of thing. So as much as that's not what the episode is about in terms of that's not why old Jake is doing it, I feel like it's an episode that kind of slightly touches on 
those themes in a way. Um, and certainly in its kind of emotional content and the kind of mixture of just loss and pain and, and kind of confusion and these kind of unanswered questions, because, you know, with Cisco, it's the fact that he's gone, but yet he's kind of, he's not quite gone. He keeps coming back and, and this kind of uncertainty around it all. It does sort of, it feels like of a piece in some ways with these kind of suicide stories in a way. Yeah, I think it does, partly because we see so much emotional turmoil that he goes through. Uh, and so you're right that it does feel like less of a self, heroic self-sacrifice and more of an actual, like, I'm just, I can't do this anymore. Like, I need to, I need to leave. <laughs> I need to, to need to release this. Uh, and so it does feel much more like a suicidal act. I think that, but I think that's a lot to do with the fact that there's so much distressing emotion that comes before that. So, yeah, it's definitely a kind of an episode which kind of, I think, maybe explores that. I think it's interesting that if we're talking about making difficult decisions for your family, there is this whole other area which I'm not sure we really want to go into because it's probably a completely other, another um, podcast episode. But there is the whole other area of assisted suicide. I know we've talked about it a bit with Quinn in Death Wish, but there, I think Star Trek does kind of explore that as well. And one of the ways they do sort of explore that briefly is obviously talking about McCoy's father um, in the, the movie The Final Frontier. We see that he helped his father to die. And I think that that is another... Um, at, at, at his father's bidding, his father wants to die because he's suffering. He's very, very ill. And I assume in, in, um, acute pain and a lot of pain. So, um, that is another sort of whole other area. I mean, that's not the kind of suicide that we're talking about. It's not the willful, um, taking of your life because, you know, of, um, you know, pain and distress, um, or you being in a very difficult situation. It's not heroic self-sacrifice. It's really wanting to be released from your current uh, situation because you're in, I would, in most cases, um, in deep physical pain. So if it's basically somebody asking for help to end their life because of an unbearable physical situation or their quality of life um, is so bad that it's not worth continuing. And I've always wondered a little bit, well, for me, I've always wondered if that perhaps maybe the i'm not sure it was deliberate but that spock's um helping of pike to um go back to i think is it talus four i think it is uh it's um it is a metaphor for assisted suicide <laughs> because pike is in this terrible situation his quality of life is horrendous i mean he can only really say yes or no with this weird light thing on the front of his wheelchair um uh, automatic automated wheelchair and his um you know, and he's deeply burned and scarred and it's just, you know, it's awful. Uh, and he's going, I mean, it's, it's sci-fi. So it's this, it's, you know, it's a sci-fi solution, like what happens with Wolf's brother, you know, having his personality wiped, but it's a similar situation. You know, like, like he's, his quality of life is so unbearable that something needs to be done to completely change that. And the fact that Spock uh, has to face this trial and we know why he's facing the trial, he's facing the trial for other reasons. But I did wonder a little bit if this was kind of some sort of unintentional, I mean, I kind of took it a little bit as a metaphor for assisted suicide. He's helping Pike into a different existence, which could be, you know, helping Pike to end his life because his quality of life at the moment is so terrible. 
That's fascinating. I mean, I'd never seen it that way, but I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, Spock is kind of breaking a massive taboo as well as a law in order to help Pike, I suppose, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? There's a sense that he's doing something that's really disapproved of. Uh, yeah, that, I think that's a really interesting take on that. I mean, I think you're right. It is, kind of, you know, euthanasia is kind of a whole other topic that we could look at, but it is obviously very closely related to this one. Um, and I think sometimes the lines can become a bit blurred. So for example, as you said, that uh, Voyager episode, Death Wish, sometimes seems to be an episode about suicide, sometimes seems to be an episode about euthanasia and assisted suicide. I mean, they are, you know, they are very closely connected, but I guess the difference with assisted suicide is it's not a situation that comes as a shock, that comes out of the blue, that has, I mean, I'm sure it does have an impact on those left behind and those asked to participate or to help or whatever, but it's, uh, it's not a shock necessarily in quite the same way as some of these other uh, situations that we're talking about. I just thought finally we might um, consider a few examples where I suppose that kind of shock value is really almost used slightly deliberately. Um, and this is, you know, certainly not always the case. I think this was one of the claims that was sort of made against Hannah Baker in, in 13 Reasons Why by some people that it, it was almost this kind of, uh, that by killing herself, she sort of was getting back at people. I mean, we do have a number of stories in Star Trek where there's a sort of element of that, I suppose. You get um, in Rocks and Shoals in Deep Space Nine, you get the kind of suicide as a political act. So you get the Vedic who hangs herself, uh, you know, having invited Jake as a local journalist to come and cover her protest, as she calls it. She then hangs herself very publicly Um shouting evil must be opposed as a way of kind of um, drawing attention to her, you know, political belief or to her, her kind of moral statement in a sense, a bit like those kind of monks who would set themselves on fire, um, really making kind of theatre of it, I suppose. Uh, in the another DS9 episode, Second Sight, we have that incredibly arrogant scientist who kills himself partly to free his unhappy wife from their marriage because then she's not allowed to divorce him or whatever. But also it seems, because he's such an egotist, it's, it very much seems to be about this kind of drama that he's enacting where uh, he, he, he kind of gives his final words. He says, tell them he sacrificed himself on the altar of science. And then he screams, let there be light. And he flies into a sun. And all of this is being uh, kind of effectively live streamed you know as you as you do get these days with like facebook uh and so on people live streaming their suicide there is an element sometimes of that kind of um wanting to like put this in people's faces somehow uh, of that kind of uh drama to it sometimes i wonder even with cogenitor i mean we don't really see much of the suicide in cogenitor we just hear about it but whether there's is it that the cogenitor was just so unhappy you know having a bit like the the guy from the primitive culture in uh in the uh, Homewood, um, who couldn't cope now that he knew what he knew. You know, I suppose that's one interpretation. Is there also a kind of anger to that gesture? Uh, you know, by taking her life, she's depriving this couple who wanted to use her to have a child of, of that opportunity. She's kind of, you know, maybe that is almost a kind of political act um, in itself. You even have in the episode Liaisons, um, you talked about the, the program you're watching of the character with borderline personality disorder. Uh, the woman in that, I feel, seems very much like someone with personality disorder of some kind and is basically making suicide threats the whole time and saying, you know, if you don't do what I want, if you don't love me, you have to love me or I'm going to kill myself. Um, and Picard quite boldly 
having, as he thinks, sort of cracked what's going on to some extent, says, go on then, you know, jump. I don't, basically, I don't believe you. Um, so I guess again, you know, whether that's a particularly helpful, uh, thing to dramatize or not that, you know, there is also that. I mean, some people do use suicide or attempt, attempted suicide or kind of threats of suicide as a way to try to force the attention or love of other people in a way. Um, so I suppose that those, you know, that's kind of almost at the other ex- extreme from someone like Neelix, who's sort of actually being very considerate to other people and very, you know, and there's no kind of hostility or anger or blame. I suppose it's this feeling of blame, really. And 13 Reasons Why, again, you know, there is this sense all these people have to listen to their tapes because they have to accept some degree of of blame there. Um, and actually, Cogenitor, I think it's quite interesting because after the Cogenitor takes its own life, there is this scene between Archer and Trip, which is very much about whose fault is it. Uh, and Archer quite explicitly says it's Trip's fault, uh, that he shouldn't have meddled. He's kicked off this whole situation. Every time I watch that episode, I sort of think, well, hang on, you're the guy who just denied asylum to this person whose life is miserable for the sake of your diplomatic endeavours or whatever. You know, surely Archer should at least contemplate the possibility that he has some blame uh, kind of accruing to him as well. But I think it's kind of interesting that that episode that the violence of that act sort of um, really generates this kind of sense of, of, of blame and responsibility and all these kind of questions that happen uh, when someone does take their own life, whether it's, you know, as I was saying, uh, you know, with my friend, is it that did the doctor misdiagnose this or did they not take this seriously enough or did this person behave irresponsibly or, you know, was this person not sufficiently understanding or whatever it is, you, you know, the, the, all these, these kind of recriminations and so on. And sometimes that can even come from the kind of, from the sort of violence of the act itself. Yeah. And I think that actually recrimination, unless it's somebody has committed some grave misjustice against the individual, I think that recrimination isn't always helpful. I mean, one of the things I thought of when I was watching 13 Reasons Why is that these tapes made by this poor girl who's taken her own life uh, could actually cause suicidal thoughts or tendencies in the people who are left behind who are listening to those tapes, specifically the main character. So in the main character in 13 Reasons Why, he is deeply, deeply, deeply distressed and disturbed by listening to these tapes. Like he goes through a mental health crisis listening to these tapes to the point where at one point in one episode, he's standing on the edge of like a very steep embankment, practically a cliff, um, contemplating whether it's serious or not, we don't really know, but contemplating throwing himself off it because he's just listened to a tape that she's recorded where he, where she sort of talks about how she feels about him. And he's so grief stricken by it that he's, I mean, the main, the main character spends a considerable amount of time, like in emotional distress throughout the entire, entire, entire sort of season, entire show. Basically he cries or he screams or he shouts. He's very angry. Uh, and I'm not sure these tapes are bringing him much closure or, 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 or even, I would say, I mean, the, I guess they're clarifying the situation for him. He kind of understands a little bit more why Hannah took her life, but he's not, like, they're not really helping him emotionally. You know, they're making him worse. Uh, and there's a suggestion that he had some sort of mental health issues before all of this began uh, when he was younger. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I, I think people will feel guilty when somebody has died. 
And I think people feel guilty when someone's died, even when it isn't suicide. Because I think that guilt and grief are often very mixed together. Um, uh, even if you've done nothing or, 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 you know, it's not your responsibility or, you know, people feel, oh, I should have done this or I could have said that or that was the last thing I said to that person or maybe they needed to be, they needed better healthcare or maybe they, do you know what I mean? So there's, there's the whole what if that kind of exists with left, life and death. Uh, and I think that tortures people who are left behind. But I think people should be careful about the recrimination. And I think, I think that um, it's drama, isn't it? As well, it's television. Drama is is, is created often through conflict, and uh, in in a sense, any sort of sort of story like this, this going, they're going to sort of the conflict will be the people who perhaps maybe had something to do um, with pr- provoking the individual into being suicidal. Uh, but I did feel very sympathetic for this individual in 13 Reasons Why. But I also felt that the young teenagers left behind who were being forced to listen to these tapes uh, were basically experiencing um, perhaps more mental distress than they really should have. Um, Because at any one time, I mean, you have to think about your effect on other people. And ultimately, the rule of thumb should be be kind, be kind as much as you can to others. But ultimately, at any one time, people are going to make mistakes. And they're going to do something that they don't um, intend to be destructive. Uh, and uh, I guess if you shouldn't necessarily, um, I don't know, I guess feel terrible about that for the rest of your life. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it obviously this doesn't, this doesn't apply to anybody who's like, I don't know, the characters in this TV show who've committed some sort of assault against the main character. And, you know, but I feel like in the, these, um, these examples you've given there, it's very clearly signposted, um, who should who should feel responsible? Who shouldn't? I mean, I guess the only example in that would be that Archer perhaps maybe should feel a little bit more responsible than he <laughs> than he does. Whereas usually in Star Trek, we don't tend to blame our. I mean, all those characters: Admiral Jarrock uh, taking his own life, the the guy in Homeward. You, there, there's no kind of blame of you know, oh well, you know what the hell was Beverly doing, letting him in his quarters? Or do you know what I mean? There, there isn't much of that kind of recrimination going on. And actually, in some ways, maybe might be more realistic if there was a little bit to an extent. But I think it is interesting, you know, the one example where there is a bit more of the aftermath is in Picard. And maybe that is something that we'll see, you know, if this is a thing that comes up in Star Trek going forward, you know, maybe it's something that will be handled slightly differently now to how it was handled in the 90s or in the 60s. And like many of these kind of big uh, sort of social issue topics we've been discussing, Obviously, our ideas and our thoughts on these topics have kind of developed to some extent over the years and over the decades. And that may be something that, you know, future Star Trek will engage with differently. Um, before we go, Clara, I just sort of thought, as is often the case with some of these things, we should uh, provide that kind of information, like you were saying, um, you know, like with 13 Reasons Why they provide it. So I just thought I'd provide um, some hotline numbers in case anyone should happen to, to want them. Uh, in the UK here, the Samaritans helpline is 116123. In America, the equivalent, as I understand it, is 1-800-273-TALK. Uh, that's 1-800-273-8255. So obviously, if any listeners, you, you know, are kind of affected by these kind of issues that we're talking about and, and want to find someone to talk to, that is a very, very good idea. And those are very helpful organisations, I think. Um before we go, Clara, do you want to just let our listeners know um, 
if they want to continue the conversation, where's the best place to find you? Or even maybe start up a conversation about something a bit more cheerful, uh, <laughs> some other kind of Trek related topic. Uh, and also what you've been up to, um, you know, in the time since we've had you on the show last. I currently am editing a podcast <laughs> episode for my own podcast, which is called The Tales We Tell, which is about women and gender in film, television and fiction. Uh, the episode that I'm editing is quite an exciting one. It's uh, about the TV show Unorthodox that's on Netflix. And I've interviewed a young woman uh, who has left the Orthodox uh, Jewish community herself. So that will be interesting. Uh, you can find my podcast on um, on Twitter at The Tales podcast and on the tells we tell facebook page uh, it's also on itunes and any sort of listening services uh, hopefully i will have that episode out uh, by the end of this month beginning beginning of august uh, you can also come and talk to me on twitter and you can talk to me about anything you like star trek related um and at my twitter handle is at clara jean mc well, it's a pleasure, as always, having you on the show, Clara. Uh, next time, we really will have to pick a more cheerful and upbeat topic. But, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> thanks, as always, for joining me. We always have an interesting discussion. You're blended, all right. <laughs>